Welcome to the Driven Woman Podcast, where we're on a mission to empower women with the mindset, tools, and strategies so that they can lead powerfully and authentically in order to make a massive impact on this world. I'm your host, Sophia Bryan. Hi there, Driven Woman. I have another amazing guest for you today, and she is the first guest in my Women in Politics series. So the idea behind this series is really to have conversations around the future of women in politics. And I've invited her because she is someone I'd consider, I consider to be an expert in leadership. And of course, you will uh, have some conversations with persons who are actually in the field, actually aspiring candidates and those who are currently leading in political roles. So I'm going to get into her bio now. So my guest today is a multiple award-winning diversity leading expert, academic and author of published books who joined Middlesex University London back in 1993. Since then, she's successfully led nine postgraduate programs, including the Executive MBA, reputed to be the first female Black academic to lead an Executive MBA program in the United Kingdom. She's also led 22 modules, including the Equality, Diversity, and Inclusion module, that she designed from her doctoral studies and explored cultural meanings of respect. She holds a master's degree in human resource management and a doctorate in professional practice. She's published works and covered topics such as the drivers and barriers to women leaders, careers, global diversity management, cross-cultural teamworking, institutional racism, spirituality, and leadership. Wow, <laughs> that's all I'll say. So my guest today is Dr. Dorian Wilson. Uh, welcome, Dr. Wilson. I know you don't like the, the formal, formal thing, but it's the Jamaican in me. <laughs> that's perfectly acceptable, and thank you. Yes, you are welcome. So... One of the questions I love to ask my guests, do you ever listen to someone reading your profile and wonder if they're talking about you for a moment? Every single time I think, my goodness, is that really me? <laughs> wow, wow. You've certainly so, yeah. lived, lived a very uh, rich life so far, and I know that there is so much more to you. Please do share uh, details about where you were born and what your childhood was like? Yes, I was born in North London. Mm. And they say you're a true Londoner if you're born within the sound of the bow bells, which I was. <laughs> so I'm a true Londoner in every sense of the word. And I literally uh, went to a Catholic school. That was my mm. primary school taught by nuns. And at a time in Britain where the philosophy was children are seen and not heard, speak only when spoken to. Mm. Um, I was frequently in trouble. I can understand why I had to be on my knees and say my Hail Marys. <laughs> because unbeknown to me in retrospect, I was raised by parents and a family who said, even though you're a child, you are deserving of having a voice mm -hmm. and they could include us in debates and discussions, speak up. So their Jamaican upbringing, my mm -hmm. parents were Jamaica, um, was to encourage children to be, to assert themselves. Yes. But at the time, when I went to school, no, children, you weren't deserving of respect in that regard because you're a child. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. Hence the reason why I was often in trouble. Not because I'm <laughs> yes. Old, but because I'd say, Sister Mary, I think Johnny wants to go to the toilet because I can see him hopping from leg to leg and so on. And it was, oh, how dare you? <laughs> so that was that dual cultural socialization, being a second generation, born of first generation parents from Jamaica and from a family because my mother hails from the Mullings family. So mm. where Seymour, the late Seymour Mullings, my relative, 
And when he came to the UK, um, we met up and so forth on the Mullings side. And my grandfather, my maternal grandfather was also, uh, his first job was a maths teacher mm. before a small time politician and so forth. But that that's prolific in the, the money side of the family. Nice. Okay. Awesome. Because I, w- I was going to ask you if you've had the opportunity to really connect with your Jamaican heritage that still resides in Jamaica or still have, uh, has a strong connection to the island. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. Definitely. I have a sister who still lives there. And wow. I have and my niece. I have, goodness knows, extended family. I have loads of cousins and so forth still living there. And there, my father's name and my maiden name is Brian, B-R-Y-A-N. Oh, okay. (laughs) Maybe we're related. (laughs) Who knows? Who knows? But they were from, my father was born in a place called Portland Cottage. Mm, Okay. Okay. Yes. So I've never been there, but um, I've been to Jamaica several times, but never been there. Okay, that's amazing. There aren't that many Bryons still uh, in Jamaica right now. So whenever I get an opportunity to meet one, there, you know, we always, you know, try to figure out the connection. But I found that typically it's either Clarendon or Manchester that the that's roots are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And those are the two roots. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So having uh, somewhat of a rebellious disposition, well, at least according to your school family, your Catholic school background, uh, how do you think that impacted your desire to to pursue a career exploring leadership? It gave me the drive because um, even as a child, I had a sense of rights and wrongs. Mm. So very and, and my value of being feeling that not because I'm a child doesn't mean I'm not worthy of respect, especially if I'm giving respect to others. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I literally grew up with that, which morphed into a dictum, yeah, mm-hmm. i.e., that respect is a two way process. Mm-hmm. Um, so it came as no surprise that I studied respect. Um, mm-hmm from a cultural perspective, cultural meanings of respect mm-hmm. uh, for my doctorate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the driving force is, and the starting point is respect for the self. Yes. Which is um, synonymous with our cultural socialization and how we, we are born into a, a culture and the learning within that culture, we might not notice when we're born into it and raised in it until we step out of it. Yeah. Uh, uh, gurus on the topic, such as Mick Brooks, who said, mm-hmm. that's somebody else's culture and to understand your own, you have to step out of yours into somebody else's. Then you will notice differences. Yes. Mm-hmm. And equally any similarities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, using that as um, a platform or a dictum to um, understand what respect means for self by reflecting on the self as part of the cultural identity and the socialization, which helps to shape the people and the individuals that we are. Mm-hmm. Um, so doing that is to understand why, what we perceive is right and wrong, which is what I did. Yeah. Uh, what I perceive as values, um, my values, which was respect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that respect is culturally situated. So to understand somebody's respect, you've got to understand their culture and vice versa. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Again, mm-hmm. your own meaning of respect, you have to explore both those concepts. Yes, it's just uh, in the opening when I was saying to you that, you know, based on my Jamaican upbringing, you know, once someone is your senior or, you know, they have a certain title, you should acknowledge it as a part of showcasing your respect to them. But within the UK space and even within America, it's perfectly fine to call someone by their first name because, uh, 
you know, the respect is due regardless of what their title is, whether or not they're married, etc. So I, I really think that um, I find it very interesting that you actually drove deep into to that theme for your doctoral thesis. I want to okay. mm-hmm, go into what observations you've been able to make where leadership is concerned from the perspective of observing women and from the perspective of observing men? Well, I actually undertook a study that explored women leaders across different sectors of the industry, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. looking at uh, returners, women leaders as returners to industry who had taken a career break or were returning from maternity leave and so forth. Mm-hmm. And uh, listening to their stories and their experiences, there were similarities across the board that mm. uh, uh, were more extremes in terms of the barriers. So I was exploring the drivers and the barriers to their success as female leaders mm-hmm. across industries. So those that were working in masculine industries such as IT or finance, um, experienced more barriers. Okay. Of progress. And those barriers were based on perception of women per se, mm. that you raise a family, um, you really shouldn't be in a man's world or compete with them at the same level. I mean, we have made some changes globally in varying degrees. There's still that underlying concept that you are a woman. And this is what the majority of basically all these leaders experience in varying degrees, mm-hmm. also in masculine industries. Mm-hmm. So some of the findings identify that it was perceptions of them, stereotypes, stereotypes. Yep, that was a barrier. Okay. Family responsibilities was a barrier. Uh, particularly where, when I uh, actually interviewed a, a political leader, and um, she said, even though her male colleagues were fully aware that she had childcare responsibilities where their children were very small. So, of course, they were being cared for in the nursery. Mm-hmm, yes. Asked for meetings to be held at a time where she could attend. They would deliberately hold meetings when they knew she couldn't attend them. Wow. Especially if they were core decision-making meetings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or they would meet in the corridor in clandestine um, when they saw her coming along. She became um, a local mer- mayor in, in one of our more diverse uh, boroughs, the London Borough of Barnet, okay. I, I work in. Um, and also leaders in the financial sector, banking and so forth, um, found that they had to adopt their dress code. Oh. Um, instead of wearing dresses or skirts um, and uh, makeup, lots of makeup, they, and even they went as far as cutting their hair, wearing a trousers suit to appear more masculine, to be taken more seriously by the men. Wow. So these are just some of the dynamics and the findings of my studies. So I'd written a series of uh, research papers that were published over um, from memory 2001 to 2005 or six. But those papers are still attracting loads of interest today. I definitely need to to have those in the show notes, for sure. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at women in IT as well, but uh, again, their experiences were the same in terms of the barriers. So that um, did have an impact on some of them, making them self-doubt and question their abilities. And of course, the stark reality was that they were just as capable, capable, just as able, just as uh, competent, and to some degree, even more competent than some of their male counterparts. Mm. And there lies the problem. Mm. Right. From a man's perspective, who is also socialized from a gender perspective within a cultural perspective, uh, to believe that they are the ones that go out and do the work, 
and they get the key positions, um, decision pay, uh, making positions, um, and women stay at home, they're secondary. They still hold those notions dear, even though we are now in uh, third, fourth generations. Some of that is still there because who nurtured them? Right. Right. Wow. I am listening to you and I'm thinking about uh, the time that we met in London. One of the things that uh, I was doing while I was there, the Commonwealth Youth Forum or the Commonwealth Youth Youth Council, they were having elections for the varying roles on the executive. And I was vying for the role of chairperson of the CYC. Uh, and prior to that, there had never been a female uh, chairperson, but there was a female candidate several, many, many years ago. And my opponent was, a, was a, another, I was a male. And I could identify with some of the things that you were sharing. I experienced attacks solely on the basis of the fact that I'm a woman. And it was just so strange to me that I was having conversations with persons around me being a woman and my capacity to lead as opposed to what are your skill sets, you know, what are your talents? What can you bring to the table as a leader? What difference can you make? Those are the types of questions I'm expecting to answer, <laughs> you know, but not um, hits as it relates to my femininity. So I, I find that uh, so interesting. But for the political leader that you spoke with, was she able to find or was she able to implement any sort of strategy to overcome some of those barriers? Yes, I mean, she had to because mm -hmm. she had two young children at the time and um, her husband was an academic mm -hmm. um, professor. But it was at, at a time in the 60s, 70s, where there was very limited facilities for women who wanted to pursue a career, particularly a career in politics. Mm -hmm. So the support mechanism, she wasn't forthcoming as she would have liked it to be. It was limited, but she had to literally use her noddle or, you know, come up with um, innovative ways of coordinating childcare. Mm -hmm. And also going underground, to use a metaphor, to find out when her male counterparts were likely to be meeting. Hmm, okay. Official meetings. Yep, so she saw them. She realized that they tended to have pre-meetings uh, in the corridor in Parliament. And so she piggybacked on those meetings. Okay. Yep. And she learned that it was absolutely crucial to assert herself and have confidence in her knowledge, her abilities, and uh, her own competencies as a politician. Mm. Mm. You know, I also uh, find it interesting that uh, a woman would have that sort of issue in the context of the UK because of the monarchy, because uh, there have been a significant number of monarchs who are women, you know, the current monarch is a woman. And then you went on to have the Iron Lady and later on Theresa May. So I, I wonder if you are able to sort of make any sort of comparison or critique as it relates to those three personalities. You know, how is the English monarch thought of versus how the Iron Lady, uh, Margaret Thatcher, was, was perceived. And if you can give any commentary on a Theresa May, uh, just some things that you've observed that you think that uh, future leaders really should take note of in these personalities. Um, in response to that question, um, I have to give, uh, again, a further snapshot insight to sure. Mm -hmm. sure. And if I draw on not the only guru, but for expediency, I'll draw the works of Hofstede, mm -hmm. who basically uh, identified that every society is 
based on cultural characteristics, and it depicts those characteristics characteristics based on cultural socialization. Yes. So those who are born and raised in high, what he described as high power distance, mm-hmm. is, the people are raised and nurtured to show respect to anyone older and more senior than them. Hmm. Yeah, you'll get where I'm going. Yes. With it. <laughs> so depending on which high power distance society it is, so high power distance could be very high. Some could be a little lesser. Yes. So if I was to give a measure, because where this is an um, audio um, interview, mm-hmm. if we said 100%, so you have like um, society such as China that is steeped in more than 5,000 years of cultural socialization. So that's 100%. Let's pitch yes. that 100%. So it's very high power distance. So the behavior of the people within those high power distance society will vary from one degree to the next, subject to how high power distance they are. Mm-hmm. China is my give example. So it is imperative you don't speak back to anyone senior than you or older. Mm-hmm. If they do something, you do it. You obey. You, um, whether that's in the home or in the workplace, that is the, the reality. Business cards. If you're junior, you won't have your job title on your business card. You will have your name. Mm. If you're senior, you will have your job title and so forth. It even dictates who speaks first based on a level of seniority in the culture. Yeah. So I'm just giving little snapshots. Now, if you go to West Africa, whether it's Nigeria, Ghana, and so on, then again, if your parents or grandparents tell you to do something, you do it. Even though you might not want to, you do it. Because um, that is a society where respect means respect elders and those that are senior. Mm. And it has a respect meaning, Nigeria, um, that is unique to any other culture, which is to demand it. So if you are junior to me, I'm older than you, and we're of the same cultural background. Um, If I feel that I'm not getting the respect that I should be getting from you because you're junior and younger, I we might be working in the same environment, we're both professionals and so forth, but you make a decision without asking or checking with me first, mm. then I might perceive that as you being disrespectful to me. Yeah. Now, yeah. cultural socialization is a form of brainwashing. Mm. We, can, we do not, as I say, we do not leave it at home when we leave home. We take it everywhere we go. And we judge people via our own cultural lens. Mm. And we, based on you know, cultural socialization based on what we perceived as good, bad, right, and wrong. So we would judge others and they're doing the same. And also as we reveal is that respecting one culture could be disrespecting the other. Yes. Where there's a lack of awareness and understanding, where we're giving others our respect, we don't realize they're doing the same, giving us their respect. But if my respect is your disrespect in your culture, there lies the problem. Right. So... On that basis, going back to the UK, um, Hofstede basically um, regarded societies such as uh, Britain and America as not high power distance, but masculine and individualistic societies. So if we look at the individualism, it means that um, your titles mean very little, not unless you can demonstrate that you're a good leader you're competent, yeah, and there is evidence of your ability, then you'll be respected, even though there is still a gender perspective. Yep, so Margaret Thatcher was perceived to be even more masculine than a lot of the men. Mm, Interesting. Yep. So whether that is because she learned to adopt that approach, more masculine approach, so she could be um, respected by the men as being one who's worthy to be integrated as being one of us. 
as being just as good, one can argue that there's an element of that due to cultural socialization. But it is a society governed by individualism. So that individualism, how it manifests is that, for example, um, you might be raised in the same family, you have siblings and so on, that siblings might not see each other on a regular basis when they grow up, probably yes. at Christmas time and so on. Um, one sibling might be very wealthy and another might be quite poor. Now, mm-hmm. if you come from a collectivist society, you'd find that very, very odd to believe because the expectation from those from collectivist societies is to you support your own. Mm-hmm. So yes. if you're working abroad, you would automatically send money home to the mm-hmm. family. Yes, that sounds like the Caribbean uh, culture here. Yeah collectivist as well as high power distance so don't speak back to your parents you call your parents mother or father um your parents might have you might have family friends and they're they're older they're your parents friends even though they're not blood relation you call them uncle and auntie that's high power distance behavior Mm -hmm. or your teacher sir or miss and so on that's high power distance behavior but it's also collectivist, the behavior is collectivism, so you look after your own. Yes. So you very rarely find homes for the elderly in collectivist society, but mm-hmm. you would find them in individualistic societies like Britain and the US. Mm. It's so interesting. I, I didn't know that there was an academic way of conveying what you just said re-collectivist or collectivism versus power distance and the fact you know we the conversation is always had that in places like the Caribbean or you know where there is a Asian uh, influence you hardly find nursing home in those communities but then in other areas in the states you know nursing homes it's a big business but I wasn't able to, to convey it. So it's amazing that I'm now able to put the academic uh, perspective uh, behind what that actually is. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because we take it for granted. We raise that way, we take it for granted. And mm-hmm. we don't realize that decisions that we make and equally how we judge others is based on our cultural socialization, mm-hmm. which is why we have to be culturally aware because mm-hmm. you are a raised and nurtured in a culture and you come to a society where the whole society is of a different culture, then there's going to be issues mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you want to observe your own culture and that will be impossible to do in a whole society where the culture is different. Mm-hmm. So an example of that is where we look at, I'll use my parents as an example, who came from Jamaica. Semblance of high power desert society and collectivist society. In a whole society that is primarily individualistic and masculine. Mm-hmm. So masculinity is gendered as well. So you find that men have more senior roles mm-hmm. and in more roles of, of uh, authority, which is why if you look across most uh, boards, you probably it's probably eight to two, so two women board members in comparison to, to eight men. And this mm-hmm. is taken into the boardroom. So if you have um, individuals that are raised in one society of a culture who come to a whole society, they have their children. The children are raised in dual cultural socialization. Yes. They will be question their parents' way. Yes. So why can't I go and socialize like other people? Just because of, why is it? Because I'm the woman. I have to do the washing up. All the babysitting. Mm-hmm. Why can't I go down to the pub? Why can't I smoke? Mm-hmm. Yes. Socialization. So they take on, I'd say, an approximation of 60 to maybe 65% of their parents' cultural socialization, mm-hmm. but the rest is from the host society. So it manifests in, in what we eat. So you come to a whole society, but you still eat the same food that you're used to eating when you were back in mm-hmm. your yes. born society. Yeah? Yeah. And you might um, 
you might uh, basically disregard the different dishes of other people as not being good enough. Yeah. Which is part of ethnocentrism. Yeah. Yes. So we judge others based on the way they dress, the way they look, without realizing we're judging them negatively or positively based on what we know and understand within our culture. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wow. So from what I'm getting uh, for women leaders who are in individualized societies, it's important. Well, it's important for us to really have an understanding of the cultural context that we're residing in, because that's going to heavily influence how we interact with our male counterparts. And I think right across the board, where politics is concerned, it's still a male-dominated sport. So I think that's excellent advice because I never really contemplated that. I just thought, okay, I need to understand how to speak the language of men. But the language of men is heavily influenced by the cultural context and even the subcultural context uh, that we are living in. You are culturally aware and we're looking at politics, as a woman that wants to progress within that field, yeah? bearing in mind, let's look at Britain or America, let's yeah. look at Britain, where I am at the moment, is if you want to get by, then you have to prove your worth. Mm. They will respect you because you are competent. And so being a woman pales into insignificant. It's not as significant that you're a woman. Yes. You are competent and you have a track record and there is evidence to prove that you are truly competent. Then yes. they're prepared to listen to you and give you the opportunities that you deserve. Yes, yes. Awesome. Become this person who is a woman. Mm -hmm. So after a while, you think your womanness is sort of fades into the background uh, because the emphasis is more so on your competence. That's right, your ability. Mm -hmm. What about the importance of having men as allies? What role do you think that plays? That's crucial because, again, particularly in um, an individualistic uh, society where it is important who you know from a hierarchical perspective and so mm -hmm. on, um, which is why people tend to gravitate towards you based on who you know, who you're connected mm -hmm. with. So okay. things like what school you went to, did you go to university, how much money have you got in the bank, what car do you drive and so on, does make a difference. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have a collectivist society, you think that's terrible. Yeah? Right. But then, of course, you would do, to use that metaphor. I'm not saying you in particular, but in general, because you come from a different uh, society and you are cultured within an environment that believes differently. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So people from individualist society will gravitate towards individuals primarily based on what they can get from them. And that even means conversation yeah. or that person is uh, you know I like their personality um, and they just happen to know these individuals who have power and control mm. that's going to help me to get my child into school or blah 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 and so on or I can get enrolled within those organizations that's how it is mm. why when you come to these societies and you're out socializing, strangers will come up to you and they will ask you specific questions. Do you have an idea what questions they might ask you? If you're in America, it'll be the same. Strangers, mm -hmm. you're at party and so on. They come up to you. What questions do they ask? Mm -hmm. Well, what do you do? Yes. <laughs> uh, where did you go to school? Yes. Mm -hmm. Where do you live sometimes? Because that. They're not just having a conversation. They're benchmarking you. Are you worth knowing? Mm -hmm. uh, growing up, I grew up in an inner city community, but I had the opportunity to go to a, a really good high school in Jamaica. And so it, it was a cultural melting pot because there are subcultures and there are differences in socioeconomic um, backgrounds. And so I 
you know, we're taught that, okay, education is a key to success. And once you have a solid education, nothing else matters. All you had to do was to prove yourself that you're academically inclined, that you have a good work ethic and you'll be fine. But later on in life, I realized that, okay, the academic prowess or uh, that's just not enough because people are taking into consideration who your parents are, what, what kind of work do your parents do, where do you live? And so I found that even though I was this stellar student doing very well, getting A's, prefect, I eventually found out that there was, I was working against a sort of stigma as to where I'm from. So persons always had to overcome in their minds that this, even though this person is from this particular space, uh, I do not need to contemplate that in my judgment of her. And I never understood that. And I feel like if more women understood that, then we'd better able to navigate ourselves, navigate society. Absolutely. Because you should always ask, I always say in advice, where does this come from, this behavior, this Mm -hmm. attitude? Listen intently because what we espouse is a reflection of that same cultural socialization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, so if you look at Jamaica, the motto is out of many one. Yes. Because it is a hybrid culture. Yes. And as you know, the indigenous people were the Tainos and the Arawak Indians who died out. Right. But then the British came. Yeah. And they introduced slavery, slave yes. the society. So the demographics of the uh, island, the people, the populace are, I would say, an educated, educated guess, around about 80% of uh, African origin. Yes. Well, then you had the the traders come in, the Indians, the Japanese, the Chinese. Then you had the indentured workers, the Irish come in and so forth. And they all left their cultural scent yes. on the island. Exactly. And because the English, primarily England, um, left, uh, let's say, a, a stronger cultural scent on the island um, and socialized even within the slave kingdom, there was a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And that was synonymous with what I call biodata, such as shade. Yes. If you were a face, you were the house slave. You would get the cast off clothes. Yes. So to understand societies in their context today, you have to reflect on history, yes. such as slavery. And the field slaves were always the darker, tighter hair, broader mm-hmm. feet. Mm-hmm. And so house slaves, and they even gave them different names, such as they would be the mulattoes. Yes. And if mulattoes had children with the Negroes, those children... Those offspring would be called Sambos. Mm-hmm. I did not know that. And I did history up to grade 13. I did not know that part, but continue. Yes. So when you nurture a society and the people within it in a way that it becomes normalized, remember what I said that cultural socialization is endemic, it's like a form of brainwashing, as I regard mm-hmm. it. Yes. So you cannot debase it. So you have to understand it and know how to manage it. And when you promote awareness and understanding, which is what I do, then people really get it. Yeah. Um, so you move forward today. Let's look at someone like Beyonce and so on. How society society perceives as beauty will be a fairer face. Yes. If you look at um, Bollywood and the movies, the baddie is always darker. The goodies. Yes, yes. Yes. If you look at it, it's woven into the language. That's how clever the English were. So um, a nightmare only happens when it's dark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Blackmail is a negative thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A black leg 
is negative. Yeah? Blacklist. So when you're weaving in the language, the interplay, uh, the people's perceptions, their attitudes towards people of difference will be governed by their cultural socialization. Mm, yes. yes. But it doesn't mean you can't turn it on its head because with multiculturalism, and multiculturalism doesn't mean as a, a result of globalization and its impact across societies, doesn't mean people are integrated. They just live amongst those of difference, but they will right. respect their own cultural socialization, not right. re-educate them. And as my study, which is very unique, and I'm not saying it because I'm saying it, but it has been <laughs> recognized um, internationally, and I've been told I have to wear the, the, the mantle of the guru on the topic, is that my study actually identifies cultural meanings of respect and how those meanings manifest in behaviors and shape attitudes towards people. So by promoting awareness and understanding, what I was able to do is to enable people of difference to come together in the same space yes. to explore their meanings and understanding of respect yes. and to identify that we have more similarities than differences. What we've been doing, which is the basis of all wars and hostility, is to focus on our differences without realizing we have more similarities then we have differences. Mm, then you will be able to provide a more um, level playing field. Mm. And also I created, I've written what's called a diversity best practice teaching and learning toolkit for higher education to decolonize the curriculum. Um, so it's not governed by traditional Western ideals, which do not befit diverse student communities, yes. which has had, and I've created interventions that's promoted awareness and understanding, and that has had an impact because it's been able to address conflict that has arisen on a regular basis amongst diverse learners, particularly um, in my case study was a final year undergraduate business consulting module that attracts mm -hmm. multidisciplinary business students from all walks of life ethnic groups and so forth, but the conflict, because they had to work in diverse teams to identify solutions for real business issues, but the conflict that arose amongst them made it impossible, which had yes. an impact on their ability to work harmoniously, mm -hmm. to learn effectively, and to provide a good service to client organization. Mm. But I knew it had potential. Yes. I turned that on its head by introducing these interventions that promoted awareness and understanding of cultural truths and respect many means because respect, as my study revealed, is a core commonly shared value mm. for all, regardless of your background. Yes. And social standing. Yes. It's crucial. But you cannot give someone their respect if you don't understand what their respect means. Mm, yes. Has a checklist of meanings of respect in priority law order. If you challenge the ones at the top, there's going to be conflict. But if you challenge the ones at the bottom, there will be discomfort and hostility that could escalate to conflict. Mm. So I'll give a specific example. The left hand taboo is perceived as disrespectful in some cultures. Mm. And that has got anything exclusively to do with religion. So a lot of people might assume that's a Muslim religion, the left yes. hand. So don't offer to shake someone's hand with your left hand mm -hmm. if the meaning of the left hand in that culture is perceived as disrespectful. So don't offer to shake their hand with the left hand, don't offer yes. food, so on. But if you come from a society, like places like... Um, Bulgaria. Yes. It's the opposite. It's the right hand. Mm, interesting. The heart tilts on the left side of the body. So some will perceive the left hand as more respectful. Mm. Um, Ghanaians, they're Christians, they're not Muslims, but they have the same left hand taboo because the left hand is used for toileting purposes. Mm. Yep. But if that's not what you do, then 
you wouldn't know that. Yes, exactly. And even with the Chinese culture, which is synonymous with numbers, the mm. number four is the portent of death. Mm. If you're just about to sign a deal with the Chinese and you fly out in a party of four, before you sat down, you've got no business. Mm. Interesting. You're on the fourth floor in any of their buildings. Wow. Yeah, mm. so one has to be mindful of the implications of culture and the power of culture, which shapes individuals and their identities. That Leviticus basically said that the I in identity is more comfortable at home with the self. Yes. We gravitate towards what we know and understand. And even if you go abroad to study, you gravitate towards people that look like you, come from your region area. Yes. Until you get used to those others. Mm-hmm. So to understand our behavior in context and why we are treated even as women because in the culture there's a gender perspective. Yes. So in high power distance cultures, there is likely to be, which there will be, I say likely as an academic, or oh, use words like that. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can't be definitive because there are always variables. Absolutely. To be men, men will dominate across industries and so on. The more masculine the industry, the more men will dominate. And there's evidence of that throughout the world. Yes. Like Saudi Arabia, it's only of recent, I do believe, 2014, that women were allowed to drive. Yes, 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 yes. And the list goes on. Mm -hmm. Wow, thank you so much. This was extremely intellectually stimulating and I know you've given the listeners a lot of food for thought. Uh, I know we're close to the hour mark, but I really do want to ask you to give your perspective on religion, spirituality, and women's uh, prospects of leadership. Uh, I want to mention that uh, Portia Simpson Miller who was Jamaica's first female prime minister in one of her campaigns, uh, she had a very uh, noticeable relationship with a church. And, um, you know, she often did media releases and uh, spoke about the church and the church spoke about her. And, And we even went... It even went as far as one a prominent pastor prophesying that she'd be the next prime minister. And I, I thought that was very interesting. So I'm wondering, um, as someone who, you know, you spent a lot of time looking at theology and religion, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts around that, if you've seen that phenomenon in any other cultures, and if you think that having a relationship with a church would serve a female uh, prospective politician very well. Well, again, coming back to culture and mm-hmm. cultural socialization, part yes. past of that, um, Schenkener, um basically defines culture based on religion, yes. language, and spatial proximity where that society is based in the world. So religion and beliefs are synonymous with the culture. Mm. It wouldn't surprise me at all. Bearing that in mind, there is a new movement uh, across the globe. Let's look at um, America. Britain tends to lead the way with these things when it comes to leadership concepts, um, innovations, and um, ways of, of doing and leading in context. Spirituality is one of those mm. because the evidence believe um, makes makes evidence. Sorry, that when there is times of crisis and challenge, because right now we are in what's called using the acronym VUCA, V-U-C-A, mm-hmm. environment. So um, an environment, a global environment that's volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Um, due to world events. Trump is one of them. Yes. Brexit is another. Yes. Uh, War, 
in different regions, famine. Yes. Mm. And so that creates an environment of volatility, VUCA environment. So governments react to a VUCA environment by then pay freeze, downsizing. Um, they will more for less, so they will re respond in that, that manner. Yes. Until things are, are better. So bearing that in mind, where you have women, it's not just women, but there's research evidence, and I've written on it and so forth, that demonstrate that people in times of challenge or crisis, whether it's health and so on, people revert to faith. Hmm. And that there's faith belief and there's spirituality belief. Okay. And people revert to either or. Across the, the world, as recognized by Cassell, there are more Christians than not. That's the largest group. Okay. They will draw on their faith belief in context during uh, the wars, whichever war it was, First, Second World War, so people get down on their knees and pray. They will go and then you will see the historical films um, where people gravitate. They will run to the churches mm. and they will pray collectively for peace and so on. So it is not unusual. Mm. Now, yes. faith belief if you have faith, whether it's a, a spirituality belief faith or um, a religious belief faith, even where people are on their dying bed and they've been diagnosed with type, you know, last stage of cancer, stage four, and they draw on their belief and they recover. Because the, the mind, the brain is a very powerful organ. And we reputedly use between three and four percent of it, if we're lucky, maybe mm -hmm. 40. If they arguably, if you're more intelligent, but it's the rest. So there are things that, because they're not tangible, you can't see them, doesn't mean they don't exist. Mm -hmm. And belief. There have been so many incidences across the world, the manifestation of that belief. And I do remember reading, reading some years ago, a woman of five, sorry, she was four foot 10 or four foot 11. And she was looking out her window and she saw her son who was over six foot. Mm. He was checking, he was fixing something underneath his car and the car collapsed on top of him. And she charged out and she lifted that car off her son. Wow. Now, medically and physically, she shouldn't have been able to do that. That was impossible. But she did it because she wanted to save her son. Wow. She saw him in danger. And there's so many incidences or examples of this belief. And when you believe, you don't question whether you can or not. You do exactly. it. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. I will use myself as an example. Um, and I'm, I'm not a, a prolific churchgoer or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But um, in 1987, I was diagnosed with a disease called sarcoidosis and, and told, you've got it in your lungs, scar tissue, maximum you've got five years. Wow. And I, I looked at my consultant and I said, Dr. Glip, I'm not having that. And he looked at me pitifully and he said, just go and enjoy the rest of your life. Create a bucket list and so forth. And I repeated, I'm not having it. Mm. Now, I do remember feeling this surge of heat rise from the sole of my feet to the crown of my head, and I knew I would be okay. Yes. Which is why I'm speaking to you today. Yes, yes. Wow. Mm. So there's... Now, organizations and corporate leaders, um, academics are now writing about spirituality from a leadership perspective, including myself. Okay. By using the uh, harvesting, the learning from 
having spiritual belief um, as a means for business sustainability. Yeah, mm-hmm. interesting. Okay. So for my listeners who are extremely impressed with your academic work, uh, can you share with them some tips uh, for if they want to pursue a career in academia? You know, what were some of the strategic moves you had to make um, that has helped you to, to amass the amount of success that you have and the stability that you've had um, in your teaching career? Number one, self-belief. Never let anybody else tell you um, who you are. Yes. Number two, focus on something, a topic or a subject that you're passionate about. Because if you're passionate about it, you will succeed. Yes. Reading, learning about that topic will be second nature. Time will go. It won't be um, an arduous task if you're passionate about it. One of my mantras is that, I have two, so one of my mantras is always put myself in a position that an employer needs me more than I need them. And by that, what I mean is that I always look at an organization's corporate objectives, what it has to achieve, Mm -hmm. and I will position myself in terms of qualifications and so on and I look at qualifications and gravitated I've always gravitated towards qualifications that are not finite qualifications mm, like the next 10 yes. years, they're no longer in favor mm-hmm. it's ones that I know will always be here yes I always speculate to see what the next flavor what the next fave what the next trend will be so I always do a SWOT and a PLEST analysis. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now I fit in and ensure I collect these nuggets, types of qualifications, competencies and experiences. Always broaden your horizon and get different types of experiences because an employer will always want someone who is quite diverse. Yes. And whose knowledge is new knowledge. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And also... Never let, which is another mantra, it's a Buddhist mantra, don't let somebody else's mistake be your punishment. Mm. Mm. As other individuals might want to hold you back or drag you down because they see in you what they don't see in themselves. Or due to cultural socialization, if they regard you as inferior, Mm -hmm. how can you be of an inferior race with more qualifications than I have, more competencies than I have, et cetera, et cetera. So they will try and bat you back into a position of inferiority. Yes. Never accept that. Mm-hmm. yourself. Find comfort in your own personal identity. And the rest is history. Mm. I've proved that. And believe mm. me, I've many barriers. Final question, what keeps you driven? My passion, my interest, and the fact that um, I want my epitaph to say she tried. Yes. Yeah. So, and so part of that is me leaving a legacy because if I'm an artist by nature and nothing gives me greater pleasure than informing someone with knowledge, and when I can see that they get it, mm-hmm. I can go on and inform others. Mm-hmm. And so that knowledge is alive. Yes. Yeah. It never dies. Yes. Yes. And how you make change happen. That's what education is about. Yes. Yes. Wow. That legacy lives on. Yes. Dr. Dorian, I feel um, that I've gotten a sneak peek into the amazing tutelage that your students have experienced. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for being open. You, you, these are the types of conversations I've always wanted to have on the podcast. You know, giving persons a challenge to dig deeper, learn more and to be better and You've certainly enabled us to do that with this uh, talk. Thank you so much.
-hmm. It is easy to have fear. It is easy to question your abilities. It is more difficult to assert yourself. Mm -hmm. And when you do, you yield a lot more benefits. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for that. And thank you, audience, for listening. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Take care. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Driven Woman podcast. Be sure to head over to sophiabryan.com and check out my free resources tab. I love hearing from you. So my DMs are open and you can follow me at underscore Sophia Bryan and Sophia Bryan JA on Instagram and Twitter respectively. Follow the show at Driven Woman Podcast on Twitter and on Instagram. Looking forward to hearing from you and looking forward to receiving your feedback. Until next time, stay driven.